I'm sitting in our beginning of our meeting. It's a Sunday morning, September the 30th, 2018. We're at Rafi and Deborah Assad's house. And as had become my custom, I had had to understand something that if you're going to move in with God, you've got to get into this sort of programmatic type of understanding. I call it acceleration by blank slate. And if, if you want to go fast and you want to move across life in a quicker fashion, then, and I think you'll find that out about, like, if you listen to my episode called Formula One, how much I'm into, like, you know, speed and velocity and acceleration and, and jerk and, like, moving through things quicker. And so I'm sitting there realizing the only way to move into this meeting with our team is just you got to go blank slate. And blank slate to me is the place of unknowing. It's the place where your mind is cleared off of whatever it could imagine, think, or conceptually visualize. And then it's moving out of your feeling and your emotion and the way you feel. And honestly, for me, it makes you feel bereft and left high and dry. And I, I think generally speaking, most of us don't really like that kind of experience. But when you're accessing God, you know, and moving towards him or with him, and you want to anticipate a movement across into another dimension, you, you must move in that way because you don't, no flesh will glory in the presence of the Lord. And so you come in with praise, you come in with thanksgiving, you come in with delight in who he is. And so this blank slate, this place of unknowing uh, begins to happen. It, you know, you could make it akin to like, if you've ever watched the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's it's sort of going through that proverbial door into another dimension. And uh, we used to do this with kids. And warning, I'm not suggesting anybody do this, but we used to knock each other unconscious. And you know, you can I'm not going to tell you how to do that, but we figured out a way to knock each other unconscious. And what's really interesting about it, that's kind of exciting, was when you wake up, you don't know why you're there. Why, why you're there at all because you've literally it blanks your mind your memory out well when you encounter the Lord and I'm going to have a podcast on this called Blank Slate so you can I'll unpack what it means to move in this dimension uh, and that'll come in the final frontier training but uh, that you can move across this space uh, in with the Lord so well anyways I'm sitting there waiting before the Lord, starting to feel that breath feeling that I've always wanted to run from my entire life, the place of crossing over. And I just, I lose myself right there and I cross on over. And that's every time that happens, I encounter the Lord. Well, while I'm sitting there in my chair, Ray Fisher comes up and he says, "Uh, Pastor, I've got a word for you. And I said, well, all right, Ray. And he said, uh, it comes out of uh, Genesis chapter 5. And he says a word about Enoch. And so he's like, uh, tells me where it is. And I turn to Genesis 5, and, it, and it's in verse uh, 21. And it says, uh, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he had become the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. And Ray starts to talk to me about this age of 65 and things. And and I'm like sitting there and I said, thank you, Ray. And, And then the Holy Spirit speaks to me and he says, happy 65th birthday. And I was like, uh, what? 65th. 
birthday. Yeah, happy 65th birthday. And at that time, I was 42 years old. You know, that was a little bit more advanced for me and ahead of my years. And that's 22 years out in the future. And I don't want to get old and go on, you know, like I'm going to be 65 right now. Um, I've got my youth that I'm wanting to live in. And, but needless to say, it just, it really made me scratch my head in the meeting. And so, like, in this podcast episode, I just want to start to introduce kind of the background on this and what was going on in our life and in ministry and and how it will end up uh, relating to, hopefully, to something that you can tie in together with. Now, first of all, I've got to give you a little background. It was May the 27th, I believe it was, of earlier that, that year, and the Lord had shared with us to go into downtown Asheville and to run uh, prophetic and intercession meetings in the Hyatt. And what he had shared with us is, you're going to overcome on an international scale the world. And and I need you to go downtown and run these meetings, and uh, I'm going to teach you how it is to overcome internationally. And what was interesting about that time was because, and this is mentioned in earlier episodes, we had come through a national level kind of prophetic developmental process that the ministry was going through. You can listen to the beginning days of that in Mitchell Codex, but you know I was come I was being made aware that that there was this overcoming facet, I suppose apostolically and through a high priestly type function that the Lord was taking the ministry through. And, you know, for me, for like the height of and thinking, and again, listen to Mitchell Codex and they'll explain. But it was really profound to me that the Lord was taking us through, like back in 2013, had taken us through this whole prophetic encounters with him related to the national scene. And then uh, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast also how I believe it's a signet ring, how I got to a place of licking my wounds after going downtown Asheville and decided I never wanted to do that again. Now, Asheville is known as like land of the sky. That's like the name that was originally given to it. And like there's little towns around it called Skyland. And there's this understanding, there's like this plaque downtown. It's in a, an old area, manufacturing area in it. It called Asheville uh, Eden back in its really early founding days. And so there's this kind of prophetic thing on the background of it that has to do with heaven and earth coming together uh, in a place where heaven would meet earth. So when we had went down and and did the national level work uh, and prophetic work in downtown 2013, and then, you know, I had said, because I had lost almost two-thirds of our church at that point, that's like, I don't want to go back and do that. And so later on, this is, you know, 2018, the Lord's like, I want you to go back to downtown Asheville and you're going to take the high gate, the gate of the international the level prophetic. And and so we had done that in the words like, you know, I'm going to plant my work now and it's on a global scale. And uh, we finished up on May 27th. Well, the interesting thing was, is, is that on May 27th, that weekend, I had two doctors get a hold of me. Uh, one was uh, uh, Dr. Gus Vickery, and we met that weekend, and, and the other was uh, Dr. Tom Gross. 
Now you have to understand there's there and there's a background on this, and I'm going to end up going through this in another episode that I'm going to teach on the the uh, the tribes of Israel. But early on in my days in the Skyland Fire Department, the Lord had taught was teaching me on the different tribes and how they related to actually like um, the offices of the cabinet of the president of the United States. And I'm not going to take all this time to break this out, but I had learned that the tribe of Simeon was involved in health and human services and circumcision. you got to know your biblical history because I'm moving through a lot of material and you need to know your Bible history that Simeon and Levi were involved with their dad, with Jacob, with the Shechemites who had raped their sister. And because of that, the, Jacob makes a deal with the Shechemites and tells them if you will be circumcised to our God or circumcise yourself, then we will, uh, we won't basically come in and kill you. And so all these Shechemite men, uh, they get circumcised and they're like laid up for like a, a month in pain. During that time of that month, they're laid up in pain through their circumcision. Uh, Simeon and Levi go in and kill all of them. And they break the agreement of their father because they were sort of very volatile kind of men. And they're angry and they're going to exact revenge for raping their sister. Now, I can't, I'm not going to take this whole episode to go through the tribe of Simeon and why I believe it's involved in health and human services. But when the word was teaching me on that, like Issachar's like Department of Labor and he's going through all these different tribal motifs, I was just kind of profoundly like taken back by it. And so I had met these two doctors before and I'd had some encounters with them related to calling them Simeon and and they have some really amazing prophetic histories with the Lord related with that and so without me manipulating or trying to do anything because I I really just try to do what I say blank slate uh, that we just follow the Lord and we wait on him and let him do what he wants to do I had ended up encountering both of these men on this weekend the weekend that we're at the high, and it's going to be the weekend, the last weekend that we're going to be there, the weekend that we're going to close out. And you can listen to that podcast, I believe it's called Shell Shock, and it'll give you some explanation for this. But while I was sitting with Dr. Vickery, I believe it was on a Saturday, Friday or Saturday, I think, that we had met. You know, while we were sitting there, the Lord said, you know, I have made him a man who can circumcise at a national level. Now, you know, I speak prophetically, but what I mean is he has a national mandate sitting on his life in regards to health and the uh, renewal of health regarding this entire nation. You know, I was sitting there and he's telling me about his work that he was doing called Health Shepherds and his passion for health. And uh, he's just a brilliant, godly man. And I was enjoying my fellowship with him. And so the next morning, which was Sunday morning, I get woke up by the Lord and he says, today, I'm, I'm going to make an oath of office. And uh, tells me to look up the oath of office for the United States presidency. And uh, I'm going to bring in an oath. Uh, and, and I'm going to make a circumcision right. And right when I'm reading that, I get a text from uh, Dr. Tom Gross. And he says, uh, where are you meeting at? I'd like to come. Uh, and would it be all right if I bring uh, William Wallace's sword to the meeting? And you know, we're in downtown Asheville at the Hyatt, and our meeting's upstairs in this sort of conference room, and I, I told Dr. Gross, I said, Tom, you know, if you want to 
bring your sword and you can get it through the door, then have at it. But I'm not, who am I to stop you if the Lord wants to bring a sword? And, you know, it was really interesting and profound to me because the Lord had been speaking to me about Tom and how he had had this international call in his life and uh, that he was a, he's a doctor, he's a Simeon man, and, and he's bringing a sword. And a sword, I'm sure you're familiar probably with William Wallace because many of you saw Mel Gibson and Braveheart and drawing that big long sword. And so he brings that thing into the meeting and he puts it up in the corner and we run the meeting and the Lord speaks, you know, that he's going to shift the nations of the world and uh, plant this Melchizedek into the earth. Now, to give a little bit of a, a background on what I'm saying is, and what, what I found out over the weekend is the Lord is providing a double O uh, circumcision rite of passage for our ministry. And he's going to end up changing our name. Uh, our name's going to change in June. It was June the 1st. It's going to change from MZ Hop to double OMZ. And because double uh, O standing for Order of Melchizedek. And I'm an acronym guy because of military background. And so I'd asked the Lord when he was wanting to change the name because he's like, you know, I want to take the, I want you to take the house of prayer and let it burn on the fire like where it's meant to be burned. So I had been going through some understanding about oath and ordeal signs. And I want to share with you some work from Meredith Klein, who wrote a, a, a seminal work on this about circumcision and the symbolic oath sanction because what and i'm gonna to try to put this in our presentation because of how we're going to work through this related to enoch and and i'll connect all the dots for you and related to enoch's first 65 years before he he begins his his next 300 years of his life before the lord takes him so it's necessary for us to understand the mechanics of what it means to overcome the earth and we're going to again we're going to look at this oath and ordeal signs as three circumcision rites for overcoming the world now let me just give you some passages in scripture that uh, can kind of uh, help with this first of all paul said in galatians chapter 6 verse 14 he said he says i will never brag or boast about anything except the cross of the lord jesus Christ. Because of his cross, the world is dead as far as I'm concerned. And I am dead as far as the world is concerned. Another translation says, for by the means of the cross, the world is dead to me and I am dead to the world. And what basically Paul was saying was the world has nothing that it sees in me that it would value when the world system looks at Paul, they can't find a value system that matches with their, their system. And then Paul was also saying, not just that, that when they look upon me, they don't see anything they value in me. They're also saying, uh, Paul's also saying, I don't have anything that I see in the world, the world system and the world operation that I value. I value whatever is in Christ by the relationship to the cross. And so Paul was dead to the world, and the world was dead to him. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 7 says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we're not, we, we can take nothing out of it. So he's saying, if you have food and clothing, be content with these things, because godliness with contentment is great gain. 
we shouldn't be like looking for our gain in the world kind of thinking. We should be living from a perspective of our relationship with the Lord. In 1 John 5, 4, how do you overcome the world? And this is the victory that overcomes the world and uh, even our faith. And if you have a question about faith is not some kind of credence, and it's not it's not a set of creeds that you, you say that that's my rule of faith. And, and faith is also not historical data or a historical personage like when you believe in the historical people believe in the historical Jesus, but they don't have a relationship with him. Uh, faith is not historical and it's, it's not necessarily just experiential. Faith is not even creedal. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God for you must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. And you must be immersed in God's word to engage with faith. And so again, faith is a relationship with a person, the very person of God, the personage of God. And so with that idea, um, when you look at Mark chapter 8, verse 36, and you begin to engage the the gospel drive or the drive of uh, what he says in 35, he says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. When you engage with that idea um, that the Lord is promising us and you say, you know, I engage with you being the word of my life and also engage with you expanding your kingdom by the gospel, then in Mark's gospel, verse 36, it says this. And so what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What we're working here with is a world understanding, a national and international and a global understanding. What can a man gain or what does it profit a man if he was to gain the whole, you were to gain every piece of property in the world and you were to be the steward of every property. What would you gain if you gained all of that, but you lost your soul? Now, put another way, you could say it like this. What if a man was to lose the whole world, what would he find? If you were to lose the whole world, what would you gain? Your soul. So with that understanding, that's, that's the framework that we're going to work out of here is, if I was to lose the whole world, and it had nothing in me, and I wanted nothing in it, then I would, in effect, have my soul. So there's the trade-off. You, you're either trading your soul for the things of this world, or you're giving up all the things of this world, and realizing that the world has nothing that it wants in you, and you're saying, in effect, that, like Paul in Galatians, the world has nothing in me, and I have nothing I want in the world. Okay, so therefore, what do I gain? My soul. And what I want to propose today is we start to look at OO, the double OMZ, and the order of Melchizedek is what this order is about and what these 65 years were about for, for Enoch was going through uh, these circumcision rites of having the world being consecrated so that the world, both on a local, national, and international level, was extracted from his soul. Now, the world is made up of two hemispheres. One is called the Occidental, which is the West, and one is called the Oriental, which is the East. 
so the soul itself is made up of a occidental function and an oriental. And one of the ways I like to explain that, because the world is in two hemispheres, is one is the West is primarily related to God's hand, and the East is primarily related to God's face. Now, one is about the face, and the other one is about the hand of God. And so when we're being restored to the Father, and being restored through this, as we're about to go into this, look at the, this double OMZ. We're going to be extracting out everything that does not look like God's hand, his right and his left hand, and what doesn't look like his face. And the Lord wants to restore us back into image and likeness. So we go through a consecration a process of, of human development uh, to extract out of us what is not like him. And this is what I believe that Enoch was going through in his uh, first 65 years was these oath rites of passage. Now, in John chapter 3, there's a man named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, and he, he's a ruler of the Jews. And he comes to Jesus by night, and he says to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher that's come from God, for no one can do these miracles that thou you do except God be with him. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say, You must be born again. The wind blows where it lists, and you hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it comes or where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him in a question, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, You are a master of Israel, and you do not know these things. Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak what we do know, and we testify that what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe them, what if I tell you of heavenly things? No man has ascended up to heaven but he that come down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in the heaven. And So what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, look, um, you're a great teacher and you're supposed to understand these things, but you're not even getting things on the earthly dimension. Uh, if you don't understand being born again, now I can't even get into what I really would like to get into with you about heavenly things. If you don't get the earthly dimension, then how are you going to get the heavenly dimension? You know, for many of you, and I'm, and I'm hoping for this, this episode that you're really going to be uh, coming to some understanding here because what I'm attempting to do is uh, show that this 65 years of Enoch's life related to the earthly dimension and the 300 years that he's going to live is going to be related to the heavenly dimension. And uh, at the point where he begins to father Methuselah, uh, Enoch's going to have a shift in the way he relates to the father. Because as he becomes a father to a son, who actually is going to be the longest living man ever to live on the face of the earth, 969 years old, he's going to learn the heart of the Father, and that's going to help him transition into this 300 years. 
Now, my interest in the podcast here today is to start to lay out for you this understanding from a national and international Melchizedek level so that you can see that there are three rites of passage concerning consecration related to the earthly realm. Now, these are circumcision rites, and circumcision is called God's covenant, his covenant in the flesh of his people. The identification of covenant with circumcision reminds us at once of the coalescence of the covenant with its oath cursed in the extra biblical treaties. The meaning of circumcision as symbol of the oath curse is actually expressed in the word. There, there the thread of the curse sanction sounds against the one who breaks the covenant by not obeying the command of circumcision. And in, in the scripture it says, he shall be cut off. The use of the verb karat in this specific description of the curse clearly echoes the idiom of cutting a covenant or karat barit. And it is an unmistakable allusion to the nature of the rite of circumcision. So the primary passage or interpretation of circumcision is the idea that what the word is looking for is a sign of oath curse through covenant ratification. By cutting off of the foreskin, there's a judgment of excision from the covenant relationship of symbolically. Now, what I'm going through here is the the function of how circumcision or the cutting of covenant is for the and the right of it is to is to ratify an oath with us to restore us back to the Father. And that because many of us or all of us except the Lord have a fallen nature in us, there must be these rites of passage which the blood of Jesus has paid for for us to go through. Now you you have to understand this you know, for by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you are saved. It's, it's not of works. If it was, you would have some way to boast in it, but it is by grace through faith. And so, but again, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And so there's a relationship with you and I in relationship with the Father where he takes us through events in our life that brings us through the circumcision rites. And it, I would like to suggest to you that there is a, a national restoration that has to happen inside the soul as well as an international development that would, would bring us internally, restore us back together. And so uh, Israel in Jeremiah 4.4 was given a command, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Uh, circumcision's constitutory import appears in a figurative use made of the idea in the law of the fruit trees in Leviticus 19, 23 through 25. For the first three years, the fruit was regarded as uncircumcised and it couldn't be eaten. But the fruit in the fourth year was to be consecrated in joyful praise to the Lord, and then Israel might eat of the fruit in the fifth year. According to this pattern, it was the act of consecrating the tree and its first fruit to the Lord that terminated the state of uncircumcision that so constituted the circumcision of the tree. Abraham went through a consecratory purpose of circumcision and was brought home in another cutting ritual he was afterwards called to perform. When his Isaac, the son of promise, was born, Abraham had circumcised him on the eighth day as God had commanded, Genesis 21.4. But later God's going to summon Abraham to take up the knife again and to perfect Isaac's circumcision 
by cutting him off altogether from among the living, Genesis 22.1. The identification of this cutting off of Isaac as a burnt offering, the form of sacrifice expressive of total consecration. It illuminates the meanings of these knife rituals. Circumcision, whether partial or complete, was an act of consecration. So with this demand that was laid upon Abraham to perfect the circumcision of his son, he was uh, confronted with a dilemma of circumcision or consecration. The son of Adam, who would consecrate himself to God in the obedience of covenant service, can do so only by passing through the judgment curse, which circumcision symbolizes. Isaac must be cut off in death at the altar of God. In the circumcision of the foreskin on the eighth day, he passed under the judgment knife of God, apart from God's altar in a merely symbolic token act of conditional maldiction. This cutting off of the whole body of Isaac's flesh to be consumed in the fire of the altar of God was falling under an actual judgment curse. This was an infliction in reality of that curse, which was but symbolized by ordinary circumcision made with hands. How can Isaac be consecrated to living service in the favor of God if he must be consecrated in death as an object of divine condemnation? How can there be a fulfillment of decree of election if the whole redemptive program aborts here and now is the damnation of Isaac? The answer of this dilemma began to unfold in an earlier ninth rite or circumcision in which Abraham had participated. Now, I want to kind of lay this framework in for you that these three circumcision rites, and one we're going to introduce in Genesis 15, later on in Genesis 17, and later after that would be Genesis 22. And the, and the way that I understood this was, I from the Lord, was I overlaid this with OOMZ. So I'd put 15 with the first O, national. Later on, 17, the second O, international. And then MZ, the, or the Melchizedek, was Genesis 22 when he laid his son on the altar. And so looking at Genesis 15, it tells us of a covenant cutting and theophany which Abraham witnessed amid darkness and horror, the only proper setting of the Old Testament Golgotha. There is a passage of God in the divided theophanic symbol of smoking furnace and a flaming torch between two dismembered creatures. The mystery of the abandonment of the Son of God emerged beforehand. For what Abraham witnessed was a strange self-maldiction of the Lord of the covenant who would himself undergo the covenant's curse of cutting asunder rather than fail to lead his servant into the promised fullness of beatitude. From this knife ceremony, Abraham might later elicit the meaning of the cutting rite which God appointed to him as a sign of covenant in the flesh. And remembering this same divine oath curse of dismembering, Abraham on the Mount of Moriah might more fully comprehend what it meant that God had stayed the knife of judgment in his hand and had showed him Isaac's substitute caught by its thorns in the thicket. And when the hour of darkness should come, it was the Lord who would himself be Isaac's sacrificial ram. What God had before declared himself ready to do in order to fulfill the covenant promise to Abraham, he now by the ram intimates that he will do. He will himself come under the judgment knife and suffer the curse as a substitute of sinners. So you can read this in light of a fulfillment. There are three cutting rituals in Genesis 15, 17, and 22 that proclaim the mystery of divine circumcision 
the circumcision of God in the crucifixion of his only begotten. Paul called it, in Colossians 2.11, the circumcision of Christ. And so the circumcision of Jesus is in obedience to 17. The partial symbolic cutting off corresponded to the ritual in Genesis 15 as one passing under the cursed threat of covenant oath. That was the moment prophetically chosen to name him Jesus. But it was the circumcision of Christ and crucifixion that answered to the burnt offering of Genesis 22 as perfecting circumcision, a putting off not merely as a token part of the whole body of the flesh, Colossians 2.11, not simply a, a symbolic oath cursing, but a cutting off of the body of his flesh through death, Colossians 1.22, and a curse, darkness, and dereliction. So we have this gospel of circumcision according to Paul. So in Colossians 2, the passage already cited, Paul affirms the union of the Christian with Christ in crucifixion and circumcision. He says, "...in whom ye were also circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, and the putting off of the body of the flesh. And the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, where you also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead." Paul's interpreting circumcision as a dying or death is clear, because there's a circumcision, there's a burial, and there's a resurrection. There's a stripping off, uh, the latter being in turn the synonymous with putting to death. Now, what Paul is saying here is, and I, and I believe this wholeheartedly, that the only way to put off the body of the flesh is to be circumcised with Christ. And the only way for us to come through that and be raised to be uh, God's workmanship is, like Paul says here, to be raised through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And I, my premise here is is that when the Lord is establishing any kind of work, and especially as he is laying this Melchizedek order into the earth, there must be a, a rite of passage that goes on. Again, on a, at a Genesis 15, where again, Meredith Klein here is saying that in Genesis 15, when the Lord puts Abram to sleep and he goes through the uh, the member pieces that he's implying, and this is such a beautiful thing about God, is you're under oath to keep covenant with me, but even if you do not, I will end up, he's showing him, I'm going to basically allow my own son's life to be taken to cover and fulfill the part of covenant that you cannot do for yourself. And this is so important that this framework is inside of us because when the Lord calls you out in faith and he calls you to do something and because he knows the future and all these uh, pressures start to come at you and they're trying to tell you to do something else and to, to not follow him and to be loyal to him, you have to believe in your heart that even if the thing that he's asked you to do by faith seems like everything's going to fail, that if you will hold the line with him and trust him, that he's going to make provision uh, in the end, that there's always going to be a resurrection. And he's laying this gospel truth into Abram early on that anytime the Lord brings us through faith and we start to go through adversity, that there'll be a moment of rest and then and resurrection, and there'll be an expansion in our life that will begin to happen. And it's important 
in this that you and I understand this because the only way to come through overcoming the world uh, on a again on a national level and an international level and then in this MZ way is that we must pass through these rites of passage by faith. I imagine that many of you that are probably listening to this episode have been through like faith initiatives with the Lord where he's called you out uh, to do something that's way beyond your capacity or your foreknowledge of things or that there's any way that you could do it. Or he's told you to go go to a foreign land or go find a place that you're supposed to dwell. And, and there's no way that you can understand it. And you have to get this thing where he's like, if the Lord called me to something, you know, I must stay loyal to it, irregardless of what my family's saying, what my finances are saying, what my health is saying, what my uh, friends are saying. There's all these different things that are coming against that. And what the Lord is doing for you is he's bringing you through probably a rite of passage. You know, uh, rites of passages are very a part of our history and culture. And so they were they are with the Lord. And uh, he'll ask you to move out with a promise that he that he will be there for you. Um, but it may look like that, uh, it, like it did in Abram's case, that is threatened the very people you love. I think oftentimes I had struggled a lot with this myself because of trying to understand, you know, how this works. I mean, how do you move out in a place of faith like that and? Uh, trust the trust the Lord when you don't know uh, how you're going to how is it going to work. One of the the guys that really helped me with this, I want to suggest his book, and I, I'll put it up so that you can look at it yourself. But it's um, it was a book by Soren Kierkegaard called uh, Fear and Trembling, and he basically unpacks and he's a Danish philosopher, he's a believer, but he unpacks for us what Abram was going through and. I deeply asked the Holy Spirit to help me to understand, you know, rites of passages because they can be very disconcerting when you're asked by the Lord to go in and advance into something. And I mean, everything starts falling apart and it looks like the people that you care about the most are being threatened. And But you have this promise from the Father that he's going to restore covenant in your family and he's going to bless bless you. Maybe it's a, like I said, a relational issue with your family members, or it's a, it's a financial issue and, or it may be a health issue. And you're going through this and you're saying, okay, father, I trust you. And I believe you. My, my interest was, and I think the Lord was bringing me across this because he meant for me to help you to encourage you in your journey. Now, because many of you have been running intercession and running faith initiatives with the Lord and maybe like me, you've tried to understand them. And I needed some like mechanics help uh, or help from uh, uh, another perspective. I certainly trust scripture and I trust the Lord. But I tell you, when you're going through some tough places, you're asking a lot of questions because, uh, you know, you want to see your sons and daughters raised or you want to see the thing that you believe for come to pass. You've got a business or a ministry or a a family situation and you're like man i trust you lord to bring this to pass and i did it your way and i want to see your promise fulfilled in my life and i i like you i want to see that happen and so you know the word gave me some kind of uncanny way of looking at these and seeing that okay there's three rites of passage there's three rites of circumcision 
one of them is related nationally, another one internationally, and another one, everything comes and is put on the fire, so to speak, on the altar of God. And it's all laid before him and where the word's testing us and trying us to see our love for him that because you know ultimately what this all boils down to is you you and i end of the day are going to love him supremely and so what happens and out of loving him we will truly be able to love our our families so kierkegaard he he separated out these different i different ways of moving in faith and i want to share with you some writing that i did in a transition from what will happen with us between mz hop and double omz because this transition marked will be marked here on the September 30th day of 2018, where the Lord said, your 65 years are complete. Now that's in the ending of an MZ hop era, which had already been prophetically signed on June the 1st, but in September the 30th, and you begin your 300 years to transition because I've, I'm going to have you, I've had you go through and conquer on a world level through these three rites of passages now i'm beginning you into a heavenly developmental process and so that will take 300 years well it would take the equivalent of a man's life 300 years uh, without accelerating through the lord's developmental process that would be how long it would take now i hope that's clear to you and that that you can see what i'm saying here that the earthly years are 65 the heavenly years are 300 you can decrease time, this 65 years, can be decreased uh, by going through a blank slate, a relationship with the Father, where you just wait on Him and encounter Him through your relationship with Him, and that out of that 65 years, there are three rites of passage. Now, I've went through the three rites of passage. Now, I want to go through the mechanics of these rites of passage so that you can understand them. There are People who get right up to the edge of what God has said, and then they back off. Uh, they don't push on through uh, because the pressure on these these rites of passage can be unreal. And the stressors, because they can require some things out of you, and you just don't realize how far out you can be pressed out, you know, especially with family and friends. You know, what are you doing? Have you lost your ever-living mind? And why are you choosing to do it that way? And God told me, yeah, God told you. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, I have a relationship with him. Right. You need to da, 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 fill in the list. You know, Jesus is going through this himself. He's out taking care of everybody. And his mom and his brother show up because he hadn't eaten. And uh, you want to talk about offensive. They're just trying to get in to get him rescued from all these people he's trying to help. And they say, you know, he's got to eat. And uh, you don't mess with a mama and her making sure her kids are fed. And Jesus says something so offensive. He says, who are my mother and brothers but those who do the will of the Father? And Jesus ties up relationship with the will of whatever the Father is. And so this can be very offensive when you're moving through these circumcision rites because, you know, can you imagine how Sarah would have felt if she would have known that Abram Abraham was about to go and sacrifice their one and only son that they had waited 25 years for. And now it's been, uh, he's around 14, 12, 14 years old. And this is her baby. You don't do things like that. And, and the point is, and, and this is, this is going to come out in, uh, our phase, my phase O training in final frontier called the teleological suspension of the ethical. 
and let me just try to make that as simple as possible, teleological means the future, and then suspending that in the natural, which looks like something that I shouldn't do. For instance, God knows future tense, that when he calls Abram up on that altar to sacrifice his only son, that at the last minute, he's going to send an angel, say Abraham's name twice, and stop him from killing his son. But Abraham doesn't know that. And the suspension of the ethical is, first of all, it is not right to murder your own child. And so that's an ethical thing that seems to be out of relation with what he understands. But the Lord is testing him to see if he trusts him. And also it's a type of when the Lord is going to go all the way, the father is going to go all the way with his son and have him allow him to be murdered on a tree, to be in the cross for the redemption of our sins. And so people get up to the edge of this, and you imagine Abram's getting up to the edge, and Isaac's probably wondering, you know, what are you doing, Dad? And Abram could have backed out right there. And I think, I think probably more so than not, people, when they get right to the very edge of breakthrough and pushing through something, they pull back. And it's at that point, if you could just cross over, you'll find God to be faithful. There'll be provision. And there was, there was this blessing of because God provided for himself a ram that was caught in the thicket and if you know anything about rams they don't get caught in thickets because they're made not to get caught in thickets uh, because of the nature of their ram uh, horns and so this ram gets caught in a thicket God's provision is always there at the point of extremity where it looks like the very ones the very one Abraham loves that he is suspending the ethical uh, he's about to take his life. The Lord said, enough's enough. I see that you really do fear me and that Abram loved the Lord and that this the Lord received glory for that. Now, Soren Kierkegaard called the person who gets right up to the edge of one of these circumcision rites and pulled back a tragic hero. And so the tragic hero is goes through like a consecration in one way with the ethical and surpasses the uh, teleological. So what does that mean? Uh, The tragic hero is willing to go and go into the future to follow some kind of understanding, but he has support from uh, the universal. Now, what does Kierkegaard mean by that? Um, What he's saying in effect is, is the Abraham, Abraham, the only way that he would have been able to Uh, or a tragic hero would be able to do this is they would have to have support from other people. And other people would have to say, yes, we agree with what you're doing. And that is what a tragic hero is. They garner support from others to make their decision to move in faith. And in this case with Abram, he had no support from anywhere else except from a word of God, from the word of God. So he wasn't doing what he did because he had support, as Kierkegaard says, from a universal backing. He did what he did alone. And Kierkegaard calls that a night of faith. And that's what made what Abraham did so dreadful because he had no support in what he was doing. I mean, again, he couldn't have told Sarah because she would have stopped him. I mean, she would she would have wanted to get a knife on Abraham for what he was about to do, saying, God told me to do this. And you can see why this is, can produce consternation inside of people because 
you know, and I don't know if, if you're thinking this, but most people do not like someone to say, you know, the Lord told me to do that. And yet this is what's happened to Abraham, but Abraham's not telling anybody that the Lord told him what to do. He's just going to do it. And he's not trying to garner support from anybody. Now, most men live in such a way under an ethical obligation, they can let the sorrow be sufficient for the day, but they never reach the passionate consecration, this energetic consciousness The universal may, in a certain sense, help the tragic hero to attain this, but the night of faith is always left to himself. This is like a really, uh, I think it's a very fearful thing to come into, is when you're not trying to garner nor using the universal support for your decision-making, that you believe God said and you move out on it. And this is, uh, I don't know that everybody can handle this kind of pressure, but you're not trying to get... Uh, everybody's ethical morals to line up with what God has said because there's these laws like you don't kill your son and then you don't go and try to garner support out of the universal. So to separate these two aspects, you you're not trying you you can't get it from the moral right and you can't get it from the communitarian left. When God calls you into breach through one of these circumcision rights, it's before you and Him. And uh, I think you can start to see why this path of circumcision or these rites of passage, most people hedge and pull back on them because of the pressure related to the ethical right and the universal left. I'm not going to use those for my support system. I'm going to trust this relationship with a God whom I cannot see. The hero does the deed and finds repose in the universal or the tragic hero They find it in the universal, but the night of faith is kept in constant tension. The tragic hero's concentration, the night of faith also has, even though in his, the night of faith's case, it is far more difficult since he has no support in the universal. So when the night of faith moves out, and this is what we're talking about, you know, we're we're talking about how do I breach across these three circumcision rites? Well, as a knight of faith has this concentration like the tragic hero has, but the tragic hero is always depending upon a universal. It's, it's like getting a community of people together to get them to back you up in a decision. I don't know if you've ever dealt with something called bureaucracy or a red tape, but it, basically the idea is, is that I have to organize a bunch of people together to get to get on my side so that I can affect change. And but a night of faith never does that. They never they're quiet and they never try to get a universal support. Now, so what does this mean? The support of the universal must be abandoned. The true night of faith is always absolute isolation. The false night. Now he starts to talk about the false night or the one. The false night is sectarian. Now, this sectarianism is an attempt to leap away from the narrow path of the paradox and become a tragic hero at a cheap price. Now, let me just say what sectarianism is, or this is what he's saying by sectarian. Sectarian means someone who stays in a a place of moral absoluteness or moral rightness, but never they never move out in faith because they have to have everything has to be in a perfected order. And so. He's juxtaposing between, again, 
a tragic hero on the left who uses universal uh, universal gathering of community to make a decision versus the one who goes and closes themselves off from everybody, sectarian, but stays in a morally pure condition where they can never move out in faith. So I hope you can see the difference between these two because neither one of these are night of faith. So the night of faith, on the contrary, is the paradox. It's the individual, absolutely nothing but the individual, without connections and without pretensions. This is the terrible thing which a sectarian, he calls him a mannequin, cannot endure. For instead of learning from this terror that he is not capable of performing the great deed and then plainly admitting in it, and he goes, an act which I cannot but approve because it is what I do, the mannequin thinks that by uniting with several other mannequins, he will be able to do it. But this is quite out of the question. So the sectarian is the false knight. The universal is the tragic hero. The paradox is the knight of faith. Now, for me, and I don't know if this helps you, and, and if it doesn't, that's okay, but this helped me out much because I saw the sectarian on the right and I saw the community organizer on the left. And I realized that when God calls us to move out in faith to breach these barriers, that we were not going to be able to stay closed up and into an, an area and try to get other people that would reason academically like we do or get them around our thought processes like that a sectarian would in a closed, tight-knit community, that the academics are not going to agree with this because they're, they're structured by the mind and their own reasoning and understanding. Well, the other side as well, forget all that. Let's do the um, Saul Alinsky path. Let's community organize. Let's get a bunch of people. It doesn't matter. I'll just get a bunch of people around, around me, and they'll all agree, and we'll pull all their stuff together, and, and we'll just build a big organization like that, and then I'll be able to go out and do uh, what I will. And I think if you, if you understand what's going on here is both sectarian right, which we deal with this, I mean, this is happening right now in our culture, and community organizing left is about bringing man glory. Because if I'm brilliant and I'm a professional, and I'm not like trying to go away from professionalism, nor am I trying to go away from being a blessing to the people. But any time that is being used to promote myself, sectarianism or this tragic hero community organizing anytime that I'm moving in faith in that the Lord will not engage with that at all he is not into that ideology that philosophy that politicalness uh, that politic he is not into it at all so the Lord calls you and I to move out beyond these two dimensions both of the right and the left which is from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and he says trust me come with me. I have something for you to do. And you must, as a knight of faith or someone who is of a person of faith, must not take your support from the universal. So what do you replace with the universal is quietness. The way that you deal with universal and community organizing and all that stuff is you get quiet. But you have to be still over there. And then you don't you don't take the right sectarian because you, you put on the mind of Christ in replacement 
for the academic postulates and the professionalism. And if I clean up just right and I get everything uh, perfectly correct in a legal way, I'll finally be accepted. The greatest legalist is the greatest liberal. And the person who is the most liberal is the most legal. Again, the person who is the most legal is the most liberal. And the person who is the most liberal is the most legal. I think that you'll find that out in society. So a night of faith must move beyond those two, uh, those two dimensions to be able to pierce through the circumcision oath rites that I'm speaking of. Enoch was taken up to heaven. And I'll tell you a little story here. The, the only way I know how to describe this is in the way a little girl described it to her mother when she came home from synagogue. She said, the teacher told us about Enoch and how he walked with God. And her mother said, well, what about Enoch? And the little girl put it something like this. It seems that every day God would come by and say to Enoch, Enoch, would you like to walk with me? And Enoch would come out of his house and down to the gate and he'd go walking with God. He got to the place that he enjoyed it so much that he'd be waiting at the gate of his house every day. And one day God came along and said, Enoch, let's take a long walk. I have so much to tell you. So they were walking and walking, and finally Enoch said, It's getting late in the afternoon. I better go back home. And God said to him, Enoch, you're closer to my home than you are to your home. Why don't you come on home with me? And so Enoch went home with God. You know, when you, and I I hope in this episode, what you're beginning to understand is, you know, the mechanism of faith and what it means to move through uh, the earthly dimension. I really believe that so many uh, believers today, and I I really want to encourage you in this, is don't try to go and get everybody else's support when God's speaking to you. Um, Don't try to go garner the support of, people that are not in relationship with you like the Lord, don't try to go and find universal support. Get quiet. Sit before the Lord. Wait on Him. And also, don't become sectarian and closed off and more illegal and think that God Himself is not going to challenge that. We call it a religious spirit. Just thinking that if I just get everything right and real pretty and perfected, that somehow my life is going to be anesthetized from the world and that somehow makes me more godly because the Lord will just pull you out of all that and he'll he'll ask you to do something that just looks absolutely ridiculous why because this is the path upon which the Lord consecrates the human soul so that he can restore covenant between himself and us and know this that when you move out like that that the blood that Jesus has shed and, and that on Calvary and that was applied at the mercy seat in the heavens is enough to satisfy anything that you can need for life and godliness. And I, I hope that you hear today that there's clearly these uh, three developmental processes or circumcision rites related to the earth. And I hope that I, I hope in some way that this has sparked a depth inside of you that says, man, there is so much more to God than what I realized. I mean, all my circuits got blown. I mean, literally completely blown because after the Lord went through the, we went through all the years of MZ hop and then he said, now, 
I'm going to transition the ministry and you're going to put the house of prayer on the altar where, because that's what the house of prayer is, and said, just take that and place it on the altar. And I, I mean, I was sort of kicking and squirming and fighting and like, God, I don't understand. You told me to hold the line for this all these years. And he's, and he's like, even with that, you know, moving through that Genesis 22 thing, you got to let it burn because that's what the house of prayer is for, you know, switching the name over. Uh, and realizing that without that shift over, and, and I'm so grateful for it now, if, if we wouldn't have moved on beyond that motif, we wouldn't even have got into what's going to happen later on, and you're going to hear, hear these episodes. For a little bit more of understanding about this area, I would really like for you to uh, listen to the Lucifer Appeal. Because what ends up happening is after this structure of the earth starts to be, you know, we, we prophetically go through this double OMZ, the Lord starts to lay out the heavens. And uh, and, and when you listen to, uh, you're going to listen to later podcasts after this episodes, and they're going to take you into an understanding of going up into the heavens because the Sapphire Throne episode and Rise Root's going to come out and uh, when you hear those, they're, they're going to help you to have a follow-on. We're just getting started. I'm going to close with this. This was so cool. You know, the next day, it was October the 1st, and one of the dear people that's been in my life for 30 years now, Sue Sue Cooklish, she's, I really believe, because she was given this word back in the 70s, that one day she, that she would be a part of the of the Melchizedek Order. And she has this wonderful teaching ministry and really came into our family while we were living in Norwood. And my dad was a pastor of the Nazarene Church there and just dramatic development from her and her life. And I can't say enough good about her and how much we love her. But she, I believe she, she came into our family and intervened in our family there in Norwood and really planted the seed of uh, the Melchizedek Order into our life. And now it's been some 30 years later and the next day she she calls me uh this is after you know the word has said you know you're uh turn 65 and you have 300 years to finish your ministry assignment and i was like lord you're going to have to increase the velocity because uh you know we're not going to live for 300 years so we'll have to get this done in a, a faster fashion and you know i'm just really thinking you know is this really been is it really saying 65 years old my kids are getting a real kick out of that and they're picking with their mom about it about dad's become an old man and you're you're a young woman and she's just like i don't want you to start telling people that and and that the ministry now has come through 65 years and uh sue calls me the next day she says carol would you pray with me i think the that i'm supposed to buy this uh car and, and i'm going to go exchange my car and and I said, yeah, I'll pray for you. And uh, so I pray for her, and I get a text like a few minutes later. I bought it, and she brings her car back home, and she had bought a new Lexus, an NX300. And I just, I don't know how you are, but I just thought it was just a prophetic sign. It was literally the next day, and, you know, the Lord saying, you know, uh, get ready for the, the next 300 years, and go ahead and just move on ahead with me, and I can't wait to tell you in the episodes that are to follow what has happened from that. You know, 45 encounters will happen about the Sapphire Throne and being caught up to be with him. You know, here's the end. It says 
in the Word, it says, One day we're going to behold Him, and when we behold Him, we're going to be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Right now, there Ezekiel says this, I believe Ezekiel 126 says, I saw the appearance of a man who's seated on the throne. And that's the Son of God. He's Jesus. He's seated right there on the throne. And when we behold him, when we gaze into his eyes, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And I believe that there's just a pattern plan of the Father to catch us up uh, so that we can look him in the eyes and that to go on ahead and and, uh, pioneer for this to see Jesus come out of retention and come back down to the earth to rule and reign as he is meant to. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you. You know, thank you for that. Those moments that you brought us right to the edge and we just do not know what we're going to do. That you challenged us to, some of us that have left father, mother, children, houses, lands to follow you. And uh, you, because you put destiny in us, you put an identity in us, you put a calling in us, you put a desire in us, and we just said, you know what? Uh, I, I've got to be marked by my relationship with you because I love you, and I'm not backing out. And we, we've got up to the edge, and we're just like, Lord, you know, bring me through, break me through, and we can't see clear, and we don't understand sometimes. And, but we hold these precious truths and promises in our heart that you gave us. And Lord, I just ask for everyone right now that are dealing with um, this thing of that's community has tried to come against. You know, even really wonderful people, but have used conventional wisdom, or or we've tried to even seek and garner help from uh, others in the wrong way. I, I just pray, Lord, you bring stillness right now, where we can hear that still small voice, like Elijah did in the cave, and listen to you when it seems like our lives are under threat or our provision under threat or our family members are under threat, we just hear you out. Or Lord, also for those of us who have had a proclivity towards, you know, everything's just got to have every T crossed right and every dot dotted right. And then where we believe in good ethics and we believe in having, uh, doing what's right according to the law, but we can't, but, but we need to move away from some legal things that maybe be uh, maybe have been holding us captive because the legal aspects have kept us uh, where we're performance-driven in a wrong way or we're prideful related to our performance or we're prideful related to our legal aspects because we got everything put together just right. And you're calling us to move away from that and just follow you by faith. That There's a suspension of the ethical for a little bit of time, but you you know that you're going to see us through that and that there's provision. Lord, I just pray right now that there be trust for your provision, that on the other side, that whatever we can't see, that you're going to bring your people through this. Lord, that, to extract the things of this world out of our soul and so that our soul, that we don't lose our soul, Lord, that we don't lose our way, that we're fully restored in both our uh, both hemispheres of our soul, so to speak, that we we trust you with your face that we see you and we and and we trust you with your hand lord that you're you're both a giving and good father and that you love us we thank you lord for your blood that was shed on the cross to provide this way for us because ultimately you've paid the price for all of us to go through this and we thank you for the blood that was applied at the mercy seat in the heavens lord to take us up to, as you're building a building 
which man's hands cannot build. In your name we pray. Amen.